And um, last week we spoke about stewardship. We spoke from the parable of the talents uh, where, you know, Jesus told his parable where the master gives out uh, talents to three different servants according to their ability. Two of them multiply the talent, one hides the talent, and then they all have to be accountable to their master. And um, so you guys <coughs> kind of remember what that is all about. Today, I want to start with a question. We are going to come back to the parable of the talents in a moment. Um, but I want to start with a question, and that question is, what do you believe? What are your beliefs? You know, our beliefs are actually really important in our lives. Our beliefs form the cornerstone of something that sociologists call our worldview, how we view the world. And our worldview then goes a huge long distance to determining our actions and our behaviors. So for example, let me give you an example of how our beliefs influence our behaviors. If I was to have a belief that generally people are good and they desire to be good, then when I meet someone new, that belief will then be, allow me to be quite open. I would think, you know, new person, probably a good person, right? And so I'm going to have this conversation with this person. I'm going to see if there can be uh, any connection, uh, a, a friendship that, that blossoms from here, whatever it is. That belief will lead me to be quite open. That is my worldview about people. However, if I have a belief that people are generally selfish and have an agenda, what happens when I meet someone new? I would be a bit cautious. I would possibly have my walls up and I will have a few different tests to see whether this person can make the cut to be a friend of mine, right? That's what we do. Our beliefs shape our worldview. Our worldview then uh, influences and impacts the way that we decide what to do with our lives, the interactions that we have every single day. The Bible puts it this way in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And guarding your heart uh, in, 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 um, in the Hebrew sense is not just your emotions like we think our heart is today. The heart is the center of the person. That's what Hebrew thought is. It's the mind, is the emotions, is the will, it's, it's the center of who you are. Why do we guard it? Because everything flows from it. And so whatever beliefs I have are going to determine how I live out my life. And the thing I've found about myself is that you don't actually need to know or articulate what those beliefs are. They will still influence you. I've, this is kind of the scary thing about beliefs. They have been shaped and they have been formed by our learning, by our experiences, and we are living out of these things without even articulating them. For many years in my life, I thought that God was a, a transactional God. What I mean by that, I thought that for God to bless me, I needed to please Him. That was my belief. I'd never articulated that. No one had ever said that to me, but I learned that somehow that was what I believe, and so I thought that if I wanted blessings from God, I would need to serve and serve and serve, and then I would need to, I would then expect blessings when I serve, 
And then it was, that belief got shattered when I had been serving and serving and serving and I didn't receive the blessing that I was expecting and I was like, God, you're not fair. And I needed to evaluate that belief because that belief was shaping all of my actions toward God, but I never knew that. So what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? The Bible actually has many different accounts of people or groups of people that um, showcase how different people that have a similar experience can have very different beliefs and they can lead to very different actions. I want to take you through a few of these so that you can really uh, understand this. Right at the early stages of the Bible, we read about the Israelites about to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had told them uh, that was theirs. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they, th this whole nation had an extremely similar experience up to that point. They were all slaves in Egypt. They all experienced the ten plagues that then freed them from Egypt. They all crossed the Red Sea on dry land and watched God rescue them from the Egyptian army. They then trekked through the wilderness and all received water from God and food from God. They all were led by God through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You can read all about this in Exodus and Numbers Sorry, I was like, which one comes next? And you can read about the whole story, uh, and, and you will see all of these people had a similar experience. But yet when we come to Numbers 13, as they were at the doorstep to the land that God had already promised to them, and they, they sent 12 spies in, the 12 spies go into the land, and then when they came back to give a report, uh, the, the 10 of them said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. What does it mean? It was an abundant land. There was more than enough. It was going to be so, so good. God has promised us a good land, but... This land is inhabited by giants, and we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Read that in Numbers 13. After all that God had done, they still held this doubt or this belief that somehow God was going to abandon them at any moment. And this could be it. This could be the time after God had done all of those miracles, I'm done, guys, I'm out. Somehow that kind of belief was with those 10 spies, except for two of them, Joshua and Caleb, Numbers 13, verse 30. This is what they say. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. I was reading that and I was thinking about it. Do you notice that Joshua and Caleb didn't say, I know that God is still for us and that God is going to ch chase out all these giants and that he's going to carve a way for us. No, no, no. There was this interesting thought about their actions and who they are and what they're going to do when they just say, we should go up and take possession, for we can do it. That's really interesting to me, isn't it? Because our belief about God influences how we see ourselves. And so for half, no, more than that, for 10 of the 12 that influenced the rest of the million people, by the way. They thought somehow, after experiencing God's deliverance and power in their life, they still doubted. They still didn't have a belief that God was going to come through. But Joshua and Caleb, they had a different belief. We've seen what God has done, and He's not going to fail us. And so I know that I can have confidence in what I'm going to do next. Yeah. 
Our beliefs impact our decisions. Let's fast forward and a few generations later, we have this account of David and Goliath. Famous story, most of you know it. But this story, let me just recap a few points. David was just a teenager at this point. Never fought a war, never fought a battle, never took anyone down, and yet he was here in this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. Except he wasn't a warrior, he was an errand boy. He was going to the front lines to deliver cheese and bread to his brothers. He gets to the front line, he sees all of the Israelite army quivering in fear because the Philistines had sent their champion named Goliath, who was a giant. He would, I don't know if that is um, anatomically correct. No, that's not a right word. This is to scale. But he was a massive guy. Yes. He was a massive, massive guy. And he came out of the camp and he taunted the Israelites saying, you guys are cowards. Your God is going to betray you. My God is more powerful than your God. I'm going to take you down and you're going to be my slave. He came out every day and he was shouting that. David comes to the camp and he sees the whole army in fear. And his response is, let me go. I'll take him. Stupid teenager, right? These guys think that they're invincible. They can take over the world. Anyway, David goes and and, and he he prepares for battle. He he steps out onto the battlefield. and, and, And Goliath looks at him and he goes like, what am I, a dog that you come against me with a stick? And this is what David says, 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have to fight. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Have you ever noticed how bold this guy is? You know what? You... Uh, coming against you, all of this, I've got God on my side and I'm going to cut off your head. He goes on, right? That is not graphic enough. If, if you're a little bit queasy, maybe cover your ears for a couple of seconds. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. How is it that this teenager could approach this battle when the whole Israelite army, the battle-hardened warriors of the nation were quivering in fear because they had a different belief in God? Had a different belief in God. For David, he hears the taunts of this giant. He hears that this giant is slandering God, and he goes, big mistake. This wasn't about me. If you were still honoring to God, (laughs) I wouldn't maybe step onto the battlefield, but because you slandered my God, it doesn't matter which one of us steps onto the battlefield because the battle is the Lord's. And since all of you cowards are not going to go, I'll go, because God can deliver by me, can deliver by you, can deliver by the next person, but God is fighting this fight. My belief is that God knows how to defend himself, and so if he needs to use me, he will use me. In fact, maybe he wants to use me so that everyone will know that it's not by sword, nor shield, nor nor arrow, nor, nor whatever weapon or skill, it was by God that this deliverance came. 
How is it that maybe sometimes we don't have that courage and that boldness in our lives? How is it that sometimes we, 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 we quiver in fear? Maybe it's because of how we believe God works. Our belief shapes our experiences. Our belief shapes how we approach God. Our belief shapes how we then approach situations and how we know whether God is for us or against us. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. And this time Jesus is teaching. We're in John chapter 5, chapter 6. And Jesus feeds 5,000 people. I actually, it said 5,000 men, not including women and children. So possibly 10,000 people, possibly more. And he breaks five loaves of bread, two fishes. He thanks God for it. And then he gets his disciples to give them out. And over 10,000 people possibly are fed because of Jesus' miracle, right? Pretty cool. Jesus goes healing and, and doing all these miraculous things. And then Jesus settles in to teach. And he teaches and he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me and you will not receive salvation. Jesus was like, he was getting to the point. And the crowds heard this teaching and he said, this teaching is too hard. Now these people had heard what Jesus taught, but they'd also seen what Jesus had done. They had experienced the miracle working power of God and they heard his teaching and it went too hard and they all left. The whole crowd, all 5,000 plus of them that got fed through this miracle, suddenly had this moment of like, nah. And it is left. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, are you going to leave me too? And this is Peter's response. I love this verse. I've been thinking about this and I make sure that I remember this verse um, in difficult times because this is really cool. John chapter 6, 68 to 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Basically, these guys, they saw the same miracles, they heard the same teaching. The crowds weren't convinced or did not believe that Jesus was God. And so they went, I get an option here. I choose to leave because this is too hard. But the disciples saw the miracles, heard the teaching, and went, this is it. It doesn't matter whether I like it or not. It doesn't matter whether this is hard teaching or not. It doesn't matter whether it fits in my mindset or not. It doesn't matter whether I, I feel goose pimply on the outside and warm and fuzzy on the inside. I know that you are God, and if you are God, then whatever you say is truth. And more than that, whatever you say is life. <laughs> I love this, the contrast between the people that went, no, 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 Jesus, your teaching is way too hard. I'm backing out. When Jesus was actually trying to teach them about life, about kingdom life, about eternal life, and the disciples, they're looking at this crowd, and I'm thinking, they must be thinking, you guys are idiots. Because Jesus fed you in the natural, but he's now trying to feed you in the spiritual and in the eternal, and you don't want it. Why? Because they had a different belief. 
So when we come to God, and when we come to situations in our life, are we, we will always act out of our beliefs, but what, what are your beliefs? Is your belief that God is good and always good? Is your belief that God is trustworthy? Is your belief that God actually desires good things for you? Is your belief that God is a good leader? Is your belief that God has truth? Is your belief that God has freedom? Or is your belief that I don't need that? When we come to this idea or this concept, this principle of stewardship, this is extremely, extremely important. When we come back to the parable of the talents, we notice that two, to, uh, two of the servants, they come to the master and they seem to be filled with confidence and joy at approaching the master and they say, look, this is what I have done with what you have entrusted to me. But the third servant says, Matthew 25, 24 to 25, then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. I knew, I believe you to be a hard person. I believe that you are hard to please. So no matter what I do, it's not gonna be good enough. I believe that whatever I try, I'm always gonna fall short. I believe that I'm never going to be acceptable in your eyes. And so I decided that if I were to try, I was gonna to fail, so I'm not even going to try at all. Your beliefs impact the way that you behave. Why is it that two of the three were able to do something with what God gave to them, but one was so shattered by fear? It's because of their belief. All three servants lived in the same master's house. All three servants were relating to the same master, but the third one held on to a different belief. So what is your beliefs about God? And in the terms of this series, what is your perspective? What is your beliefs about stewardship? I was thinking about this as I prepared for this series, and I thought, you know what? Stewardship has a really bad reputation. And I want to put two points forward for you just thinking about stewardship and God. And the first is this, that stewardship is the original design for humanity. When we look at that in Genesis chapter 1, God had created Adam and Eve, and then he spoke into that. And this is really important because at the creation, this is how God is saying, this is the pattern for all of time. This is your design. This is the original blueprint. And this is what God says. He says in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. Why is it so important that they repeat it many times? So that we get into our thick skulls. God created us in his image, right? Get it? 
Let me say it again. God created mankind in his own image. In the image God created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. Notice this. He blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. Da, 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 da. Verse 31, God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Why do I bring this up? It's because I realize that when we think about stewardship, we think that we are servants and we think that we are lesser than. When I ask you to be a steward, when I ask you to serve, what's the automatic thought in your head? If I'm serving, then there's someone else in power. Right? Maybe you don't think that immediately but you know that you're not in charge, right? I, I see this in some people. It's really interesting. When I ask some people to serve, it's like they shut down. And they're like, okay. And it's like, can you go do this? Yep. There's no initiative. There's no life. There's no joy. There's no thought. Because they're simply robots that are created to serve. And when we think about God and how God entrusts us and calls us to be stewards, we think that God's created these little minions to look after His creation, right? The truth is God created us in His image. God created us in His image. God didn't create minions with no brains. He, he, we are not like those little yellow idiots in, in the Despicable Me and the Minion, I tried watching the Minion movie. I was like, this thing is brain dead. They are so stupid. <laughs> they are terribly stupid. Someone has a different belief to me. I could not watch that movie for more than 20 minutes. I was like, oh my Lord. Is that what we think of when we think that we are stewards of God? We're just looking to like, serve because we've got no nothing else of worth than us. You know, I looked at this passage and I was like, no, 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 God created us in His image. When it says that God created us in His image, the language is one of a parent and a child. You know, when a mom and dad come together and they form a, a, a child, that child is in their parent's image. That's what they are. And so if we are in God's image, God is not saying that, that you are lesser than. He's saying, I have placed great value in you, and because I love you, I'm blessing you with stewardship. Our original design and our lives are meant to be as stewards because God has designed us that way. And can I just say this, and this might sound really harsh, some of us in Western mindset think that stewardship of God is, um, is a choice. We think that I will have, you know, this is my life and I do my life and then there is my spiritual life and that's what God owns and I'm going to serve when I'm in this box when that's not how God talks about our lives. Our lives are not about choosing whether we are stewards or not. Our lives are about being judged about whether we are good or bad stewards. <laughs> that, that's it. That's what the Bible describes. 
And that's not because God demeans you, it's because God has created you with value and purpose, and that purpose is to steward. Why is that life-giving? Is because when we understand that we are stewards of God, we receive what God has portioned for us. You see, when you look at the two servants that received the entrusting and then did something with it, they actually received it and owned it. This investment from God, wow, I can do something with this. The third servant received what God gave them, and they're like, oh, crap, I don't know what to do about this. This scares me. How can two of them be excited, maybe, by what God has given one or scared is because of their belief about who God is. Two of them understood that their purpose lies in stewardship, and so they could receive what God had given to them, but one didn't understand what stewardship was about, and he couldn't receive. We were created to be stewards, we're not created as lesser beings. Being a steward is not a lesser being. It's, a, it's just our design. The second thing I want to talk about is that stewardship is exciting and not mundane. And, and it is linked to the first one. But I, I was thinking about this. You know, and I already mentioned this. Sometimes when I ask people to serve, I get the boring version of them. The one that is brain dead, that doesn't know how to think and doesn't have initiative. Right? Why? Where did this come from? I, I, I think, this is not research backed, this is Nate thinking backed. I think that the Industrial Revolution might have ruined us to serve. Because we created factories that if you worked in a factory, you were shoehorned into a little space to do one little thing, and that's all you do, did day in and day out. And so Ford was a creator of these assembly lines, right? Can you imagine before Ford, people were saying, I build cars. It's exciting. This is my job, I build cars. Ford comes along, I screw that thing in. I put the tire on. What's your job? I'm a tire putter on <laughs> I'm not a car builder anymore. I've got my little spot. I don't even need to think about it. And that's what Ford was trying to do, get rid of human error. <laughs> How do you get rid of human error? I train you to do one tiny little thing. I don't employ you to think. I don't employ you to bring any creativity to this job. I just want you to do this one thing and to do this one thing consistently for the rest of your life. And I wonder if that's what has crept in into our understanding of what stewardship is. Now, what Ford did was actually revolutionary, and now robots do that dumb job. You know, that's how technology goes. But I wonder if that's still a residue in us. You know, be your own boss. Don't have to listen to someone else telling you what to do, when to do. Be your own boss. And suddenly when I tell you, be a steward of God, it's like, ugh. Okay, I guess I'll stop thinking then. Look at how God entrusts in the Bible. Back in Genesis, he goes, he looks at Adam and Eve, hey guys, you're created in my image. You have capacities that are linked to who I am. And I'm going to give you 
the job of looking after the whole creation, and you get all the seeds, all the animals, you get all the fish, all the birds, all yours. Now go look after it. How, God? What do I do? Try. Have fun. See if fish can fly. See if, <laughs> see if cats can swim. I don't know. I don't know what it would have been like, but I'm kind of like, God, you, I, I tried to look for it. Like, there's no manual as to how to look after the earth. There isn't. I look at the master and the three servants. He gave them the talents. He gave them the money, right? And then he says, he doesn't even act like, there's no instruction. He doesn't even say, do something with this. He kind of almost maybe expects that they understand how he operates, right? They got close enough to the master to know what he's going to expect from them, and then they just went and did it. Do you know that stewardship in kingdom context is actually one of the most creative, one of the most innovative ways of living? Because God resources us, and then he doesn't micromanage you. He gives you the Holy Spirit to guide and give you wisdom along the way. And it's a process where we learn how to interact with Holy Spirit and say, God, you put this on my heart. What do I do about this? But somehow, we stupid human beings think that stewardship of God is carrying a burden that is too heavy. And so we bury our talents in the ground and then we go, oh man, I hope that's okay. Your creativity your initiative, your ability to think, your ability to decide, your ability to try and to fail and to get yourself back up again is all part of stewardship in God's economy. You know, one of the things that I'm really sad about as a pastor is that quite often I can invest into a person for years and years and years, and then suddenly when I point out that something isn't quite right with this person, this person will go like, oh, I can't, oh, man. Oh, I failed the Lord. I failed Him. I'm like, um, yes, haven't we all? Uh, do you think God was like, now that I have saved, now that you said the sinner's prayer, right, you can't fail anymore. You're now one of my servants, and you're not allowed to fail. You, when you were saved, suddenly became a superhuman that knew exactly how things are supposed to work in every situation, even though human beings are unpredictable, and even though they do whatever they want to do, but you, because you are saved, you are suddenly superhuman and you will never fail. Why do we have this kind of a burden that we put on people regarding the life that God has given to us? I love that the Bible actually teaches us that when we come into the life that God has given to us, it is wide open spaces. That's how the Bible describes it. I love your ways because they lead me into wide open spaces. They don't constrict and confine me and make it mundane and boring. But rather, what we need to understand is that the world puts forward a kind of life. They say that you can be in control. You can make your own decisions. You can make your own life. But what they're saying is that you can become a part of the rat race, going around in circles in a maze that has no exit. But what God is saying is that I've opened a way for you to get out of that and to live according to my ways, which bring life and fulfillment. Your choice... The choices that you make from Monday to Saturday. That's not about shoving God aside 
and saying, oh, maybe that's too hard, or like, no, 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 this is my thing, God, and then I'll come early on a Sunday morning to lift church, and I'll put out chairs, and I'll do all of this stuff, and that's me being a steward. No. That's minimum Christianity. I don't even know if that should be called minimum Christianity, because you seem to think that God doesn't want your Monday to Saturday. You seem to think that God doesn't care about your Monday to Saturday. You seem to think that God doesn't care about every single moment of every single day of your life. The Bible tells us that He's numbered our breaths. He's numbered the number of hairs on our head, which for some of us is a lot harder than for others. And, <laughs> and God, is, God knows you intimately and He sees you every moment and He says, come on. I have given you something for this very moment. I've given you something for your job. I've given you something for your family. I've given you something for this very moment in time. So how many of us are burying our stuff in the ground because of fake, lousy beliefs? Like I've said, I had to confront many of mine. I've had to look through and continue to look through and to discover, wow, why do I think God's like that? When we were singing the songs that we sang this morning, did they make sense to you? All my delight is in you, Lord. When you sing that, is that true, or is that like a, I hope one day I'll get there. There is no one else for me, none but Jesus. I wonder how many of us are saying none but Jesus plus a secure job, plus a two-story mansion, maybe about five acres, and about 15 servants. <laughs> that, oh my delight. <laughs> or oh, throw a Lamborghini in there. Or oh, maybe two vacations a year. A COVID passport. <laughs> When we sing these songs, it's because they are based on how God is actually presenting Himself in His Word. And the more we come to that place of going, God, being a steward, a servant in your courts is a better than a thousand days elsewhere. I understand that you hold the words of life. Where else can I go? Where else can I go? When you step foot into your car and you drive to work on Monday, it doesn't mean that you've walked away from God and you get to make your own choices. You can, because God doesn't zap you if you don't. But, but, but He's like, come on, I, I, I'm still here. He never sleeps, He never slumbers. He watches over you every single day, every single moment, every single hour. He is the good shepherd. He guides you, He leads you. You might be gone through the valley of the shadow of death, but he's still there. His rod and his staff, he comforts you. And you might be facing opposition. Well, you know what? He's making a banquet for you while you're facing the opposition. His banner over you is love. He is there. And he is there to help you with the stewardship of what he has given you in the first place. How, how, how do you believe? What, what do you believe about God? Are you going to be the 10 spies that would see all that God has done and go, I don't know, you can still leave me? Are you like the Israelites facing the giant and, and going, oh, 
the giant must have scared God off? Are you like the crowds that had their fill of physical food and then they heard this hard teaching and they went, came for the feast, not for the fist, not for the hard stuff. Yeah, God, you can heal me of all my brokenness, but don't tell me how to live my life. A number of people I've seen like that. For me, it's not like, oh, come on, you're an idiot. No, it's not like that. It's like, I, that healing was meant to bring you into greater life, not to free you to go back into your old life. That's why do we, anyway, what do you believe about God? When he entrusts you with those talents, is it like, oh, man, just when I was going to have an exciting life, and God came in, and he started to put a burden on me for other people. How inconvenient. <laughs> you want me to love others the way that you love me? I know how much you had to sacrifice, God. Why not you just love me? And we'll just call it quits. I don't know. The more I go through life, the more I discover stewardship is not something I get to choose. It's not something I want to choose. Rather, what I want to focus on is to be a good steward. To actually look at what God has given to me and to do something with it. And then when the day of accounting comes, and it will come, to be able to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in my joy. Can we get the band up this morning? When I was thinking about stewardship, this is exactly what I was maybe fearing, that in dealing with this topic, there's so much misconception about God, about the way that He works, that there are so many people, maybe you are here today, and you're burdened, you're coming into God's presence and you are scared. You're anxious. You're like, man, you know, how do I know whether God really accepts me or not? How do I know whether God really loves me or not? How do I know whether I'll fit in? How do I know whether I'm going to succeed? And you've got all of these thoughts about coming to God and it's scaring you and it's holding you back. <laughs> and what, what's been helpful for me is understanding that this life that I live is not my own. It was purchased at a price. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, I believe. And what that means is that God's already paid the price for your admission into His kingdom. He already saw you as worth investing into. And then he said, you know what? Look at my storehouse. It's got plenty. And out of that plenty, I'm going to give you some. So that you get to experience living in my abundance. So now go do something with it. He didn't go, I've got three talents left. If I give you one, what are you going to do with it? What's your business plan? Are you going to succeed? Or are you one of those idiots that's going to lose my money? 
why do we think God's like his bank manager? It says his storehouses are overflowing. He's got no lack. He's got no need. He doesn't need you to succeed. He doesn't need you. He just desires that you're part of his kingdom and living up your design. That's a freeing thing. I remember once my youth pastor many years ago, I was talking about being worried about missing the mark. And he just looked at me and it, it was like he had just like gone, like he just realized how whack I am. And then he said, mate, is God like putting you on a tightrope and then slapping you every time you fall? And I was like, maybe. <laughs> why, why, where did that concept come from? Not from God. His ways are wide open spaces. Everyone just close your eyes for a moment. If you're in this place and you realize that you've walked away from God, or maybe you realize that maybe most of your life you didn't even want to include God in your plans and your purposes, and you're in this place and you're going, I feel so bound up, I feel so dry, I feel so worried, I feel so anxious, I feel like I've not got anything, then let me introduce you to a Jesus who is all grace and is all love and is all wisdom, and He is all about giving you life. I have come that you can have life and life abundantly. Let me introduce you to this Jesus. If you want to notice Jesus, can you please repeat this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I want to experience life. I want you in my life. I don't want this anxiety. I don't want this sin. I don't want this brokenness. I want something more. I invite you into my life. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.